Hello, this is Pastor Luke, and you are listening to the Living Hope Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's sermon. Our mission is to grow disciples and multiply churches who will glorify God and transform communities. For more information about our church, please visit our website at livinghopehenderson.com. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to, uh, to look at your word and study your word together. Lord, this morning, as we look at scripture, uh, we invite your Holy, Pre- your Holy Spirit um, to, to lead and guide and speak to us, Lord, and that um, by your word and, and by your spirit that we would understand you more, fall more in love with you, Lord, and that you would equip us for, for another week of living. We love you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. So a few years ago, uh, we were in Kansas City, and our family went to go see the, the Steamboat Arabia Museum. And, and I don't know if, if you've been there. Um, I, I loved it. I thought it was absolutely fascinating. Um, so what, what the deal was, so back in the 1800s, the Missouri River was really kind of your main transportation route um, to get between, you know, towns and, and cities and, and, you know, to just kind of get out into the west and that kind of thing. Um, 2,500 miles long, and so these steamboats would go up and down the river, and it could actually be kind of dangerous. There's um, around 400 boats, that steamboats, that were known to have sunk on the, the Missouri River, because what would happen is that um, part of it is, is that back then the, the river would really kind of change um, change route a fair bit, but trees would get in the river, and then the, the root part of the tree would get stuck or, or kind of caught up or, or just kind of waterbogged, and then the top part of that tree, you know, the water pushes it downstream. Well, when you're headed downstream, no big deal, but when you're going upstream, you, a lot of times you can't see these trees because they're under the water, so basically it's like a spear, and those boats would impale themselves on these under underwater trees and then sink. So it could be really dangerous headed upstream. So September um, 1856, the steamboat Arambia um, is headed upstream on the Missouri River. It has over 200 tons of cargo and it's destined for all these these general stores in like 16 different towns. And so it's the basically the supply ship for, you know, the, these general stores um, all throughout. And it also has um, 150 passengers on it, um, but so it's headed upstream. It's just outside Kansas City, and it hits one of these trees, and it sinks super quickly. Well, all the people live there fine. They get off the boat and that kind of thing, but all this cargo sinks, right? So fast forward to the 1980s, and an air conditioning repair guy is in a customer's house, and there's a map on the wall with all these marks on it, and he goes, what's that? And the owner says, well, that's a map of, all, of ships that have sunk along the Missouri River and where they're at. And then I'm not exactly sure kind of what all transpired next, but this air conditioning repairman, his two sons, partner up with another guy who owns a restaurant business and a construction business, and they decide to go after the steamboat Arabia because the river has changed course And so it's now like 50 feet below some farmer's field in Kansas. So so they decide that they're going to go after this because who else but a restaurateur and an AC repairman. And so, but they have to do it in winter, right? Because the farmer would like to plant in his field. 
So they have to do it in winter when there are no crops in the field. And it's still fairly close to the river. So they drop, like, or they drill like six, like, thousand-gallon-a-minute wells around it and pump all the water out. Then they excavate down, like, 40, 50 feet. And they find the boat. They, they find it. And they get all this stuff out. Um, it's been preserved because it's been, you know, there's been no oxygen and no light for the past hundred years. But you want to keep it cold until you can figure out what to do with it. Hence the restaurant guy, because he had walk-in coolers. So they took all the stuff from the boat, and they took it to this restaurant guy's walk-in coolers. And the construction guy, of course, has the heavy equipment to, like, move all this dirt. So they dig out the boat, and then they put all the dirt back, and then the farmer plants his field in, in spring. And so... Um, so it, so uh, so on the, so it, it's a remarkable story. And then they were going to sell everything, but they instead they they turned it into this museum in Kansas City, and the entire collection is there because it cost them like a million dollars to pull this off. But they were through you know museum fees and whatnot. They've been able to basically recoup their their costs, and now the the collection is complete. It was fascinating. So it's all different kinds of stuff. Um, the tour guide was saying. You know, you, you know, in some cases, it's like, well, you find, I, I think his example is like a pocket knife, right? Like, you find a pocket knife in the dirt, and you're like, well, maybe this was the common pocket knife of the era. We don't know. But when you find, like, 50 pocket knives on a ship that sank in 1856 destined for the, the general stores, like, you know, like, this is what they were doing and, and all this different stuff. They brought out Antique Roadshow to look at the collection. So Antique Roadshow looks at the collection, their staff or their people, or I don't even know how you get a job on Antique Roadshow, like there's a resume. And so they, they look at all this stuff, and they're like, well, we got to think about it. So they go home or to the hotel, and they come back the next night. And Antique Roadshow says, look, like we will encounter like a plate, okay? You have the entire collection, and it's never been eaten off of. Like we literally have no frame of reference for the stuff you have. Like, it's simply beyond any of our scales. The, the single most valuable item on there was, he said, there is a bolt of Chinese silk that was wound so tight the water never actually penetrated into it beyond the first two layers. And so they, I mean, who knows what, what that's worth. Anyway, sorry, I, I nerded out on that just a bit. Um, 150 people on the boat, right? They all get off. Um, and the, the newspapers carry the story about this gentleman uh, who had been on there, and he had his mule on there. And when the boat sank, the newspaper talked about him, like, cutting the reins and him trying to get this mule off the, the boat and yelling and screaming and beating on this mule, but it was too stubborn, and it wouldn't get off the boat, and so this mule sank with the boat, okay? Well, fast forward 130 years, they're excavating it, and they find the skeleton of this mule. And all that leather is still intact, and they find the harness, like, still on that skull, and they trace the reins uncut to where they are still tied to the ship. And at this point, the tour guide turns to our kids and is like, so the lesson of the moral st- lesson here is that if you lie, you will get found out. Like, it might be 130 years, but if you lie about something, it's going to come to light, Right? So we're in a sermon series on the book of Luke. Um, today we're in chapter 12. We kind of had to skip some verses just to keep going. We're trying to get as much done here as we can before Christmas. Um, Luke is one of four accounts of the life of Jesus. 
Um, Luke is the longest account of the life of Jesus. Luke is actually the longest book in the New Testament. Um, Luke is believed to have been a medical doctor. Um, He traveled with Paul, fantastic researcher, very smart, very detailed, great grammar. Like, this is the guy you want doing surgery, doing your taxes, that kind of thing, right? Like, just very detailed, uh, very smart guy. Um, He writes the book of Luke. He writes the book of Acts. Both of them were written to a gentleman named Theophilus. We don't know a lot about him. It's theorized that this was a man of influence, possibly government official, had maybe even helped finance the writing of these books, right? So that would involve perhaps some research and travel and and that kind of thing. And in today's passage in in Luke 12, Jesus is going to cover a lot of ideas. And it's really kind of fascinating because... These are ideas that in many ways could be standalone. And in, f- in fact, when you first read those first few, those first 10, 12 verses of chapter 12, it kind of seems a little bit segmented. We talk about this, unrelated idea, we talk about this, unrelated idea, we talk about this, unrelated. And that's originally kind of how I had uh, broken it up. But actually, though, at the same time, if you, if you kind of go back into 11, there's really almost this could be a, kind of an undercurrent or a connecting theme of hypocrisy versus integrity throughout all of them kind of connecting this together. So it's kind of fascinating because in some ways it, it, it could almost go both ways. Um, but just this idea that the, of hypocrisy and, and integrity, and in this Jesus assures us that it's all going to be laid bare, right? I mean, if you, if you lied about something— you know, everyone's going to know about it. If you whispered about it, it's going to be shouted from the rooftop. If you murdered your mule in cold blood in the 1800s, right, they will talk about you being a liar for generations, okay? Like, it's just, it's, it, it's going to be shouted from the rooftops. Let me read the first 10 verses here on Luke chapter um, 12. In the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were trampling one another... He began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear... Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are numbered. Fear not. You are more value than many sparrows. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man, will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Yeah, we'll 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 stop there. Um, The chapter division between eleven and twelve kind of has the potential to throw us off, right? If I go back to the beginning, um, so in the end of chapter eleven, Jesus has had a meal with um, with the Pharisees. And also with uh, uh, the lawyers. And it's pretty confrontational. Um, Like, they gather for a meal, and then Jesus has, like, these three woes for the Pharisees and these three rows for the lawyers. And it's, like, it's not 
Like, this is an awkward meal, okay? Um, so pretty confrontational. Um, end of verse 11, he went away from there. The scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. In the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were, being tra- that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples, beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Right, so there's this strong connection between this experience of the Pharisees and at their house and what's going on, this teaching of hypocrisy. And the warning is not to become like, like the Pharisees, but to keep integrity in, in word and deed. And Luke also includes this line, so many thousands of people that they were trampling one another, um, which is actually terrifying. I, I've, only once have I been in a crowd that big, and it was both amazing but also really scary. Um, Luke may have been contrasting the fame of Jesus and the, the fame of the Pharisees, right? Because the Pharisees have like a few followers and Jesus has thousands upon thousands. Um, or J- Luke is just simply telling us that his fame has just exploded um, really beyond what they can, where they can't control the masses anymore. It is a little bit ironic to me because with a crowd that large, I have no idea how you like get rest, how you get away, how you stop for a meal, how you get a break, how you get any kind of alone time, even just like a bathroom break. Like, I, I have no idea how you ever get any space to yourself. And then in a comical, almost comical way, Jesus says, you know, what you do in private, like people are going to know about. And I'm just like, what privacy? You had no privacy at, at this point in time. And so in this space where there's no privacy and everything is seen, Jesus says this, Beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have um, said in the dark shall be heard in the light. What you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. There is so much that we could unpack on this. So track the, the program that I used to work with, short-term missions teams, right? Like they would live together for seven months. And one of the things that, that we realized pretty quickly and, and that we would tell them is that like seven months is not enough time to hide anything. Like you can hide it for a few weeks, whatever it is, pick something. You can maybe even hide it for a month or two. But at seven months, like you can't, like it's just too long. Like you can't, you can't hide it. <clears throat> It's interesting because small town and small church kind of has some of that same flavor to it. Um, At the National Conference, went to a workshop, Rural Home Mission Association. Very fascinating stuff. um, Very encouraging. We're doing some stuff right. It was good. Um, The speaker made a comparison, though. He uh, he had heard some story. um, Large church, uh, large town. And one of the guys, one of the other people on staff had, had found out that the lead pastor had a horrible marriage. And probably had had one for decades to the point that his wife would only come to church like maybe three, four times a year. Well, in a very large church and in a very large town, you could get away with that, right? Here, you can't. Like, that just, <clears throat> that, like, you can't get away with, with that kind of stuff. So, I mean, small town and, and small church, like, there, there are dangers that, that you have to be aware of. But one of the upsides is that it does 
kind of keep us fairly honest with one another on, on stuff like that. But here's the thing, though, is that if something is hide, if someone is hiding something, they're probably very, very good at it. Like to, to the point where it's almost scary. And there are stories like this as well, too. Um, but if in those situations where someone is an expert, really, at, at hiding something, if you're close to that, that is, that's frustrating and to a certain extent scary as well too, right? I mean, think of, think of the, the stories, and now you can probably heard one somewhere, right, where, where you've got a family member, you know, mom or dad or something that's abusive, right, verbally abusive or physically abusive or something like that, but the rest of the world just thinks, hey, this is a great person. But if you're the person who knows, there can be fear in that. Um, there can be frustration and anger in that because everyone thinks it's this way and you know it's like this. Um, there can be a sense of feeling trapped. Uh, there can be a strong desire for justice, right? Because you want this person found out and you want their sins, particularly their sins against you to be found out, right? Like you want that shouted from the rooftops. Does Jesus promise... For all these hypocrites that are getting exposed, does he promise that that will happen in this lifetime, or do we have to wait for some kind of heavenly judgment? And the, the answer appears to be sometimes and yes. Sometimes that exposure does happen on earth. Sometimes justice happens on earth. But I don't think it's promised on earth. And that can be hard. I do believe that, that all of us will stand before God. <clears throat> There's a lot of parts of heaven that we're not entirely sure on. I mean, we have descriptions in the Bible. But to be fair, like how do you take something like heaven and then describe that in a human language to a human person, right? Like, I mean, it, you, just, you just can't, right? So we've got hints and glimpses and that kind of thing. But there is some pretty strong evidence to suggest that there's one judgment that's like a saved, not saved judgment. But then another judgment that like what would be called like a Bema judgment or, or something like that, where this is my terminology, super kind of dumbed down, almost like an award ceremony for like what happened on, on earth, right? Like, like, like how did you steward the gifts and the opportunities that were entrusted to you while, you, while you're on earth? And, and again, I mean, totally theory or, or conjecture that, you know, this is something that the entire history of the church may be present for. Like you, you read about these giant crowds in heaven and, you know, just generations upon generations and nations upon nations and that kind of thing. If our life is exposed or played out in that setting, that is, that is way beyond anything that, that could happen in the earthly realm, right? For our life to be put on display... For, for our life, for God to say, you know, go through and like, well, you kind of goofed up this one, but great job on this one. Again, I, we're kind of theorizing. But, but to somehow to just have that real revealed before the entire history of the church, right? Like throughout all the generations. Um, I, I think the, the, the consequences of that is far beyond anything that, that we could have on earth. 
kind of the last idea uh, to share with you on this morning is, you know, Jesus compares hypocrisy to like yeast or leaven in that it starts small and it's seemingly no big deal, but it grows and it spreads and it affects other areas of life and eventually it just impacts or infects or corrupts everything. And so for us to keep hypocrisy out of our own life, which we should, to just realize that it starts small and it spreads, right? Like no one jumps into the deep end on this, right? Starts off small and grows. And for each of us even to really just self-examine and to say, where am I not being kind of exhibiting full integrity and to correct that now, right? Because now is the time for repentance and correction, right? And that is incredible power to bring healing to you, to, to bring healing to those around you. Luke then jumps to this next section. And again, maybe this is totally unrelated, but there also might be a, this theme of hypocrisy connected to this. Because I, either this is disconnected, this is starting in verse 4, or it is actually the fear of man that is one of the greatest breeding grounds for hypocrisy in our life. Verse 4, I tell you, my friends... Do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him whom, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. And then it apparently, yeah, another change of direction. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs on your head are numbered. Fear not. You are more valuable than many sparrows. Right? Maybe, just maybe, if we can free ourselves from the fear of man, in doing so, we really free ourselves from also from the danger of becoming hypocrites. Uh, we talked about this a few weeks ago. Maybe it was a few months ago. I kind of lose track of time. But culture has completely warped our understanding of hell. Right? Like, culture has turned hell into a kingdom and it's ruled by satan and he's in charge and he runs the place and satan's will be done and he's just always on fire because he really enjoys that right like that's culture's depiction of hell totally wrong hell is a prison system built by god and he has control of it satan is not in charge He's more like the guy who's locked up in solitary confinement. He's a prisoner there, right? And everybody is just miserable and being tortured, okay? Like that is, that is hell, more of a prison system. So who has the authority to cast into hell? Well, God does. He has that authority and he has that power, right? Jesus saves us from the wrath of God. He, did not, he does not save us from the wrath of Satan. He saves us from the wrath of God. It's also interesting to note the almost flippant tone that Jesus takes concerning our physical death on earth, right? Like, I mean, it's like, yes, there are people that can kill the body. Meh, don't worry about them. They're not the problem. Okay. (laughs) God is the one that you need to fear, right? But then, fear not, the hairs of your head are numbered, you'll be fine.
God loves humanity far more than we realize. That's one thing. I mean, yes, hell, yes. But God loves humanity far more than we realize. Even the people that you would consider really super bad, right? Like God loves those people far more than, than you and I realize. And especially, especially for those who have been reconciled to God, right? Repented of sins, asked for forgiveness, received forgiveness, received the Holy Spirit, right? Become a, a new creation. Like really, like you don't have to fear anything and certainly not hell, right? And he knows things about you that you don't even know about you. Take every positive emotion that you have experienced as a parent, right? Just filter out the good ones, ignore the bad ones for now. Filter out every positive emotion that you've ever experienced as a parent and just stretch that into infinity and you're kind of starting to get where God's coming from, right? That love, that joy, that pride, that excitement, that exuberant, even the laughter, right? Like that, that is your standing as a child of God. We don't recoil from the world. We don't sequester ourselves away. We press in because all of this is too good not to share. With Christ as our Savior, we don't fear God. How much less do we need to fear man? Meh, not a big deal. And there, I, I don't want to get too flippant about that. There, I, there's lots of stuff that, that could be said. But for today, um, yeah, how much less do we fear man? The next section, again, right? Um, I'm going to limit, limit myself just to the, a lot could be said. I'm going to limit myself just to the, the lens of hypocrisy here just for time. Um, verse 8, I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be given. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. In your day-to-day -day interaction, and as you just interact with humanity and people around you, when it comes to your faith, how do you talk about that? Right? Like, do you downplay it? Right? Hide it. No big deal. Not really a thing. Try not to bring it up. Or, like, are you bold with it? And you proclaim it. And you're unashamed of it. And who cares what they think? Because this is the God I love. And this is the God I serve. And if you don't like that, well, I, who cares? How you speak of or acknowledge Jesus when you talk to humans, Jesus will, in essence, mirror that in speaking to God the Father about you. Imagine standing before Jesus, God the Father, every Christian who has ever lived, and Jesus says, nah, he's not that important. You know, like once a week I acknowledge him, but for the rest of the week I pretend like he doesn't exist. Matthew 25. This is a little bit longer section. Let me read this to you. Uh, verse 14. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. Uh, to one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. 
He who had received the first five talents went at once and traded them, and he made five talents more. Uh, he also had the two talents, made two talents more. Uh, but the one who received the one talent went, dug a hole in the ground, hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants comes, settles account with them. The one who had received five talents comes forward, bring five talents more, saying, Master, you have delivered to me five talents. Here I made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also had the one with two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered me two talents here. I made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went, and I hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown, gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him, give it to the one who has ten, for to everyone who has more, more will be given, uh, he will have an abundance, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken, and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness, in that place weeping and gnashing of teeth. Again, there's a lot about heaven that we don't know, all right? If, if, I put it in bold in my notes, if. If the phrase, well done, good and faithful servant, is to be spoken in heaven, I don't think all Christians will receive that. Some will, some will not. Just my theory. I have prayed over my children. Um, I have prayed over you from the pulpit. I don't, you'll start to hear it now that I mention it. I've prayed for myself. Lord, may we, may you, may they be welcomed into heaven with fanfare, having been found faithful for all that you entrusted into their care. And that's just based on these verses, this idea. My greatest hope for you is that you can stand before God and hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Like if I can pull off one thing and make one thing happen, it would be for all of you to hear those words when you stand before God. Because the implications of, of what happened on earth to get to that point, like that level of faithfulness, May we be welcomed into heaven with fanfare, having been found faithful for all that you entrusted into our care. Integrity of word and deed says that who you are in private is who you are in public, right? So when you're in a place where no one knows you versus church on Sunday morning, right? Like, is that consistent or is that different? There were... So a couple, couple many years ago, when I was at Multiply, there were a couple of gals that were going to head to Vegas for a couple days. Um, and at that time, maybe it still is, I don't know, at that time kind of the slogan that was getting advertised was that what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Well, Randy, our general director, like is in the hallway and meets like one of these gals that's headed to Vegas. And he's just like, remember, 
What happens in Vegas affects you for the rest of your life. We laughed about that for weeks. But it's totally true, right? Who you are when no one is watching needs to match who you are in public, right? And both need to honor and glorify Jesus. Hypocrisy starts small, but it has the potential to corrupt your entire life. A driving force of hypocrisy is the fear of man, right? Worrying about the approval of man, not wanting to stand out, not wanting people, you know, to to slander you or say bad things. But we don't worry about them because compared to the authority and the power of God, who can send people to hell, right? Like those men are nothing, right? We live for that audience of one. He is the one we serve. He is the one we love. He knows us better than we know ourselves. And so we maintain integrity in word and deed because how we speak about Jesus in public and in private is most likely how Jesus will speak about us before the Heavenly Fathers and the angels. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your scripture. Lord, thank you for the way that it inspires and convicts and corrects. And um, Lord, we are grateful for your truth and to have access to this and and to be able to meet with with freedom and be able to meet openly. Lord, I pray for everyone here and for everyone listening. Lord, I pray that for each person that we would be welcomed into heaven with fanfare, having been found faithful for all that you entrusted into our care. We love you and we worship you in your name. Amen. Thanks so much for listening to this week's sermon. We hope you were enriched and encouraged. If you have any questions about Christ or church or would like more information, visit our website at livinghopehenderson.com or email me directly at luke at livinghopehenderson.com. We hope you have a fantastic week. Take care and God bless.